The things that I found that were shocking were one, that these diminishers get less than half of people's capability. That was a shock. Two, is that most of the diminishing that's happening is accidental. Like I said, it's well over, and this is something we have recently studied, it's well over two-thirds of diminishing behavior is seen as accidental. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Liz Wiseman. Liz, over 10 years ago, wrote a fantastic book called Multipliers and recently has updated it. And the reason I wanted to talk to her about this in particular is because she identified two types of leaders, multipliers and diminishers, and the multipliers get two times the output from their teams than the diminishers. And the interesting thing is most of the behaviors that are exhibited by diminishers are completely accidental. And that's what we talk about today. We talk about some of the diminishing behaviors that people do by accident. She said only 20% maybe of the diminishing behaviors are deliberate. People deliberately trying to put their teams down. The rest of it, we are doing it by accident and we are holding back our teams and we are holding back productivity. And the only thing stopping us is an awareness and a desire to do things differently. So I have a great conversation with Liz. Uh, We talk about a bit about racing your children to the bus stop and the implications for good parenting of that. She's got some fantastic book recommendations at the end. I had a great conversation with Liz. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Liz Wiseman. I'm a researcher, executive advisor, and author. Liz, how did you end up being a researcher? Well, I think I'm I'm a really a self-appointed researcher. I am a researcher, I suppose, because I'm curious and perhaps data-oriented. I started my career at Oracle and, you know, you learn to be really data and evidence oriented when you work in a tech company like that. And I really embarked on, on my journey as a research when researcher, when I was doing a lot of executive coaching and stumbling into questions that we didn't have answers to. And I think because I had spent so much of my career hanging out with professors and researchers that it just was the natural thing to do. And is that because you're at Oracle, the audience of executives were tech folks who wanted hard data before they would believe some of the things you were telling them? I think so. And actually, really early in my career, I got trained 
as a programmer. So I joined Oracle out of business school. I have an undergraduate in finance. I'm great with spreadsheets. I'm analytical. I'm sort of math oriented. I was, you know, strangely, I was one of these people who in these, um, you know, we call them the ACT or SAT exams, like all of those kind of college entrance exams. I have a very skewed profile, very high on math and low on language, which is really funny because now I spend my time writing, which is really technically I'm no good at this. And, uh, you know, if you go back to these aptitude tests, but, you know, when I had, I joined the company and a year, about a year into um, my tenure there, my group went away and I had to find this new job. And I took a job working for this new hire training group. And I had fully intended on working on management training, but, um, my boss made it pretty clear that there was a different problem and what they needed was someone to teach programming to all of the programmers that they were hiring. And so Oracle was gobbling up tech talent. And so this was like the early days of tech and, you know, software has now become king over hardware. And, you know, we're hiring the top graduates out of the top you know, electrical engineering and CS programs in the top universities. So Oracle would go into, you know, to Harvard and Stanford and MIT and Caltech's graduating class, and they would somehow get to know the professors and they would find out who all the top grads were. And then they just gobbled them up and hired them. And then when they came into the organization, they had to learn the Oracle tech stack. And so somehow, and it's a little bit of a long story, but I got designated as the one who was going to teach them how to use Oracle technology when they first joined the company. And I've, I'm out of business school. And I'm like, well, wait a minute here. This is a job I'm, I'm horribly underqualified for. And so I was trying to figure out how to do this. And I got um, connected up with a, a co-teacher. Her name is Leslie Stern. And she was like a proper technologist. And she said, Liz, here's the thing. You know, you think like a fuzzy and you need to learn to think like a programmer. And she's like, I'm going to learn you to think like a programmer. And, and so she taught me, this is how programmers think. You change one variable, you test, you know, you, you like change a variable, recompile your code, test it. And, you know, so she taught me this mindset of isolation, how you, you know, you're interested in one thing and then you need to isolate that thing and then just keep testing theories on it. And I think it really affected how I think. And I think it's one of the things that makes me a pretty good researcher. Somebody had to like sit me down and teach me how to think like a programmer. Huh. So you, uh, so you taught these people how to program. So you were taught how to think like a program, but then you were also taught to do the programming or did you only have to do enough to to show people how to learn the language you know i never became a great technologist i knew just like an ounce more than the people i was about <laughs> to think i was teaching so i i never was a great programmer i didn't do a lot of programming i got offered jobs as a programmer inside of oracle and i kept saying you guys you, you don't understand i am not a programmer and they're like liz you're going to be fine you're going to learn how to do this but what I did is I learned the Oracle technology stack just enough so that I could teach them sort of that day's lesson, so to speak, and then, then study up and figure out the next day. And 
I consider it a bit of a ruse. Now, I, I'm not like sneaky or clever or anything. It's probably like the most sneaky thing I've ever done in my whole career. But I really think most of these new hires, these I mean, these were people coming in with like master's degrees and PhDs in in artificial intelligence. And <laughs> I don't think they had any idea that I didn't know what I was doing. And, <laughs> you know, and some of them are the tech titans of Silicon Valley today. You know, there's a bunch of people who've now gone on to start companies. And I love running into them because they don't ever be like, they're not like, hey, Liz, I read your, what are your books? They're like, oh, yeah, you taught me PL SQL. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it, it, it really, it makes, I'm really proud to have learned how to do something that was in some ways fairly unnatural. And so, but you, you, your early career at Oracle was full of those learning, learning to do things that you had no idea how to do, wasn't it? Well, it was, I, you know, it was this time in tech where things were, so I got really lucky in that I I mean, I got lucky in that I was raised here in Silicon Valley. So the chances that you get to work in an exciting place are fairly high. But I got really lucky in that I landed in this still smallish, rapidly growing tech company that was breaking all of the rules. And I just got thrown in. And when you are part of a growing company, you know, you're you're winging it. And you know, you're making it up as you go. The whole company is. And I think that's one of the things I learned about leadership in, in this is that most of these leaders in these tech companies are woefully underqualified for their jobs. And every day they're learning how to do a bigger job. And I got kind of like sucked up into part of the system where for probably 16 out of the 17 years that I worked at Oracle, you know, I was underqualified for my job every day. I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I got thrown into management at 24 years old. And I'm, a, I'm like, at this point, probably just a year and a half to two years out of school. And they put me in charge of training for the company and said, hey, we want a university. Larry wants an Oracle university. And we want you to go build that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, do we not have any adults around here who could do that job? Do you not realize that I'm a year or two out of school myself? Like, am I in, part, in charge of this university because I still remember what one is like? You know, <laughs> and and my whole my whole experience was like that until, oh, I don't know, my last year there, where I started to feel good at what I did and maybe even legit. And, you know, strangely, Dom, it was a kind of a terrible feeling. <laughs> were, you, were you bored once you knew what you were doing? Horribly bored. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe if I had been raised that way professionally, if I had grown, like, I had just, as luck would have it, I would have joined a very steady, large organization. Perhaps I would have been trained to feel like that was a good thing, or I would have just been accustomed to that, but I was accustomed to learning every day and being challenged every day. And yeah, and and suddenly that system of, you know, because with that, knowing what you're doing, you then start to fall victim to prestige and power and position and all of like the bad P words that kind of infect you with 
leadership diseases, so to speak. Um, and so you, 17 years, that's a long time. What prompted you to leave? Well, I, I left because I knew what I was doing and it didn't feel good. And I mean, I really left in search of something to, I wanted to go do something I didn't know how to do, which is strangely how I became a researcher. So I I left Oracle, hung up a shingle, as, as um, is the saying, that I was available to do executive coaching and strategy consulting. I had led Oracle's strategy um, process for a number of years. And, and so I started doing that, working with executives, working with tech executives and coaching a number of tech executives. And, you know, I wasn't new to leadership or being an executive myself. I was new to the coaching of others. And that was interesting. And then I started to run into a bunch of questions that I wanted to know more about. And and the first one really led to the book Multipliers because I just kept encountering all of these really smart people who were shutting down intelligence on their teams. And it looked a lot like a pattern I had seen at Oracle and one that I had noticed like within my first year of being thrown into management because everyone around me was kind of a genius. And, you know, Oracle hired these really, really like freakishly smart people into the organization. And I felt so lucky to work with all of these people. And I, I think I was, was fascinated by all this intelligence around me. I was like, wow. Yeah. I'd like brag to my friends. Like I work with some really smart people, like really smart, like, you know, like strangely smart kind of people. And and I just noticed that not everyone who was really smart, like once they were in a leadership role, not not all of those smart people created smart teams. Yes. And so how do you go about researching? What does your research process look like? I mean, for multipliers, what did you what did you do to test your hypothesis? So I probably my research process was very much inspired by Jim Collins. And I had such a great conversation with him a few years ago. He and I did um, a little road trip together uh, with speaking engagements across Australia. And so I got to hang out with Jim for a week. And one of the wonderful things that I, I got to do during that week was to like thank him and tell him that his research process that he used in Good to Great is really what inspired me because I had read Good to Great several times and, you know, I'm the kind that would read the appendix on the research. And like what I got to say was, Jim, like you made it so clear what you had done. You know how, and anyone who's read that book knows how disciplined Jim is as a thinker and a researcher. And he laid out his process so clearly that it actually made me think, oh, I could do that. That doesn't seem so hard. And, you know, it's how I was raised at Oracle, which is, oh, well, that doesn't seem that hard. And if I can learn to teach programming to the top programmers in the nation, like I can certainly figure out how to research this question. And Jim is a master of these contrast research projects. And that's what I did, which is, okay, well, we have two two different kinds of leaders. We have these leaders who use their intelligence in a way that seems to, what I later called like diminish people around them. 
And then there are these other leaders and they seem to be equally smart, but they seem to create smart. So I just created this sort of two profile situation and I went out and interviewed. Now I couldn't in no way have gone and identified those types of leaders myself. And this is where my lazy gene kicks in is, um, you know, I'm always looking for like, what's the simplest way to find an answer to that question. And I'm like, well, I have my views about who are the multipliers of the world and the diminishers, but I think there's an easier way. And so I went and interviewed professionals and asked them to talk to me about two different kinds of leaders they had worked around. And, you know, I screened these professionals. I was, you know, I wanted someone who was smart and successful, someone who didn't have an ax to grind, as is the saying. And, you know, I didn't want their baggage into this conversation. And so I went out and interviewed, um, you know, dozens of people saying, tell me, and I didn't have the terms multiplier and diminisher then. I just said, tell me about a time you worked for a leader when you were at your very best, when hard problems are getting solved. And I described the conditions that I saw these leaders creating. And then I had a an interview template and I asked them to tell me about leader A. And then I did the same thing about leader B. And then I gave them a survey so that I could get more quantitative data. And I think it was a very simple research project, but it seemed to capture something And it captured this 2x difference we see between these leaders. And it's a difference that has been replicated. Like we've re-replicated this research in different industries and different countries all around the world. And it's just held true. So it turned out to be a pretty simple but powerful research process. Is there a ratio between multipliers and diminishes? You know, we've never looked at the data in terms of like, who is a multiplier and who is a diminisher and what percentage of the population, because it's hard to know what the cutoff is to deem someone a multiplier or a diminisher. What I will tell you is that of the diminishing behavior, about two thirds of diminishing behavior that we see is what we would call accidental diminisher behavior, meaning it's done with the best of intentions. You know, the, the percentage of behavior that's purely diminishing, where, you know, I sometimes call it evil diminishing behavior, like where the person is fairly aware of what they're doing, they're to some extent doing it on purpose and for a reason, you know, this is down in like the 20%. Most of it is accidental. And is the same true for accidental multipliers? I mean, is is what proportion of the multiplier behavior is deliberate versus accidental? You know, well, I, I think it's a fun question to answer because that number has changed over the last decade. So oh, right. the book Multipliers came out 10 years ago, and there's a lot less accidental multiplier behavior now because I think a lot of people are aspiring multipliers. And have really been at this and trying to do this. And it's not just because of um, my book, Multipliers. It's because over the last decade, there's been a sea change of opinion about how we should lead. In fact, when the book came out, I guess it was, you know, 10 and a half years ago, I was looking for some endorsements. And in particular, um, 
there's a, a two professors out of the UK and the endorsement said like, this book is subversive. <laughs> and I was so, so happy to get this endorsement because I had this feeling it was an idea that was a little bit subversive and it felt validating for someone to say it because we had always believed that the best leaders were the the uber smart, the uber strong, the uber courageous, these like kind of like that strongman model of leadership that has dominated the world for so long. And here I come along and say, you know what? A lot of those I mean, some of them are total asses, as we know, <laughs> but that actually doesn't make them good leaders. Like there's this shadow effect that is created by some of these highly competent and capable leaders. And that shadow is really costly to organizations. And it's really costly to high growth organizations that are poised for growth but are being dragged down because the the capability of the leader becomes the ceiling. Like it becomes this threshold that the organization can't get past because they, like these diminishing leaders, one of the things I've noticed, I'll just focus on one thing that I, I learned is multipliers ask good questions, whereas diminishers tend to tell people what to do. But when diminishers even venture into this question asking mode, they're usually asking questions that they already have answers to. And what it means is that an organization can't grow beyond the thing that the leader knows him or herself. And, you know, again, go back to where I grew up professionally. I grew up at Oracle where there was a lot of know-it-alls, but the best leaders you know, people sometimes ask me, like, was Larry Ellison, is he a diminisher? Because he sure seems like a diminisher to a lot of people. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't call him a sweet guy. You know, he was never like came and put his arm around me and said, hey, Liz, we sure appreciate you. You know, you're just doing such a great job and we love you. You know, he wasn't that kind of leader. But Larry, for me, Larry was a massive multiplier. And like one of my colleagues said it best, like if Larry trusted you, there was no greater multiplier because he would put these young people in charge of things that we had no business being in charge of. And he would just sort of ask a question or point us in the right direction or sort of suggest something needed to happen. And he he actually drew on our naivete to figure things out. And, you know, and so I think that's what I found is that these diminishers have this kind of a damning effect on the growth of an organization. Yeah, it's and I mean bar the 20% of people who are doing it deliberately the the rest of those behaviors people are just unaware, aren't they? They are and that's that like the things that I found that were shocking were one that these diminishers get less than half of people's capability. That was a shock. Two is that most of the diminishing that's happening is is accidental. Like I said, it's well over, and this is something we have recently studied, it's well over two-thirds of diminishing behavior is seen as accidental. And so what are some of those? So some of the people listening to this weren't have read multipliers, and they'll be thinking, what are, my, what are these behaviors that I'm doing accidentally that if I stop doing them could unlock the potential of my team? 
Yeah, I can I can save those people a read of a book if if they want. <laughs> no, no, they should definitely read the book. Skip the book and and <laughs> you know, like and, and in some ways, um, you know, if you're going to read the book, I just saw a review pop up on Amazon that said, you know what, just read chapter one, you'll get the point. You know, if you, you can read. Of course, as an author, you're like, ouch, ouch. Like I worked hard on chapter one, but I also worked hard on those other chapters. Is it's chapter one kind of establishes this concept, but then I added a chapter in the second edition of the book and it would be chapter, it's a chapter called The Accidental Diminisher. Because what I found is that the big learning for people was not just here's what multiplier leaders do and how to be a better multiplier. It's here are the ways that you are accidentally diminishing your team. And the chapter is is all about that. And it goes through these nine ways that you do it. Now, Dom, I, I can go through some of these. I can start with the ways. Let me start with the the ways I tend to be an accidental diminisher. Okay, that'd be interesting. And then maybe I'll tell you the three that are the most popular. For me is I am what we call an idea guy or a fountain of ideas. And these are leaders who are creative, they're innovative, they're like constantly brimming with ideas. A lot of tech founders are idea guys. And they come into the office like, hey, what about this? We thought about this. We should try that. Have you considered that? And what they think they're doing is sort of stimulating ideas in an environment. So it's like, hey, I'm going to throw out some ideas. This is to, to seed the conversation, to get us thinking. And they don't necessarily think their ideas are better. They just want an idea-rich environment. Just like me, I love being part of a creative environment. Hey, what about this? Let's try this. And what happens is their ideas become kind of the end of the conversation, not the beginning, because people take those ideas and they take people seriously. Like, okay, Liz wants me to do this, so I'll go do that. Or, you know, we tend to get idea lazy around people who are so idea rich and People spend their time chasing these ideas. Okay, so that that's one. Another way that I tend to diminish is through my sheer optimism. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. You know, every performance review I've ever had has said, you know, like has a can-do attitude. My guess, Dom, you might fall into this category as well. I'm just guessing. Well, I was, I was thinking I'm two for two so far. Two for two, Yeah. Part of it is because I grew up at Oracle where you're just thrown into these hard jobs and you learn to say, oh, well, this can't be that hard. I can figure out how to do that. And so it's an attitude I take with everything like, oh, hey, we can do this. We can do hard things. We can figure this out. And you would think it would be very multiplying, kind of affirming your belief in what other people can do. But what happens is when these leaders are so focused on the upside, it relegates everyone else to focus on the downside. Or we become so convinced that things are possible that we don't see the struggle that people are going through. Like for me, I've really, really learned to change my, my internal and my external dialogue about this. Like when things are hard, I... I do what I call signal the struggle, meaning I will stop and say, guys, what we're doing is really hard. In fact, we might fail at this. Like, in fact, you know, chances are likely that we're going to fail at this or some things or that we're going to struggle. I used to open up our 
quarterly planning meetings with like, hey, what's something good that's happened over the last quarter? What's something you're proud of? Well, I've completely changed. I tend to open with what's hard. What did we not get done last quarter that we feel kind of bad about? And it's funny, like it's a counterweight to my natural optimism and people perform so much better when I'm not in this cheerful can-do mode. Yeah, because I can see, I can see that where where you are. If you think this is hard and you're struggling, and your boss is just, you just start to think your boss is delusional, and it piles the coal on your cynicism because somehow you can't see it. Yeah, how does it play out for you? You said you're two for two. Do you want me to give you three more candidates before choosing? Yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. Give me another three and I'll tell you how, how I do on all five. So here are three that come up really high when we when we rank this. And we have done a fair bit of research around this. Uh, what comes up highest is the pace setter. Uh, the pace setter is a achievement-oriented leader. They love accomplishing hard things and they tend to lead by example. And Dom, how many times have we been told to lead by example? Hundreds. Hundreds. I've heard it hundreds of times in my life. So these are leaders who are like, okay, we are going to be like more revenue focused or let's say client focused. And so these leaders are going to lead by setting the example, which is, okay, if we're going to be more customer focused or client focused, I'm going to get out and spend more time in the field meeting with customers because I'm like the department manager or the boss or the CEO. Other people will notice what I'm doing and they will do likewise. They'll follow. And it makes so much sense, but what do we actually do when somebody, the leader of the team gets out ahead of the team? The leader's thinking other people are going to follow and catch up, but people tend to actually hold back and watch. Just let them get on and do it. They let them get on and do it. And they're like, oh yeah, my boss, he's so customer oriented. Look at him out in the field all the time, bringing us this rich data about our customers. And they're doing it sort of almost like ferociously, energetically, in some ways vehemently. And so people think they're loving what they're doing. And so what happens is when we lead by setting the pace for our team, we create more spectators than followers. Well, and also we set, there is, I can just, I can hear conversations that I've had recently with CEOs that I work with. And that what they then do is they they haven't set the clear expectation with their team and now they're massively disappointed that their team haven't followed them. But the team, they never told the team to follow them. They just went off and did it. And so there's that whole expectation setting and feeling feeling disappointed in the outcome. Right. And what happens, even if we were, and I agree with you, people don't say, by the way, what, like I'm modeling something, follow me, do what I do. <laughs> but even if you say that, if it's someone is off doing their thing, and if I can't keep up, like we don't like to fail, like we are wired to want to achieve and, and perform. Like if I can't keep up, what do I do? You know, it reminds me of when my um, my youngest son was, oh, maybe about seven or eight years old. Every morning he wanted to race mom to the bus stop. This is like down the block and, you know. And we would race and he loved it because I was a good mother and I would let him win a lot of the time. And then, you know, I would have days where I would forget that I was the adult in the relationship and I would go speeding down the street and I would look back 
and he wasn't even close. He was walking. You know, he'd given up a long time ago. And when he would get to the to where I was at the you know the finish line at the bus stop, he would say the same thing. I noticed he would say, "Mom, we weren't racing that time." And you know, after enough of these, and you know, I'm embarrassed that I did that more than once. But what what it taught me is that like when people can't keep up, they just give up because it's it's easier to not be in a competition than to be losing to your boss all the time. And and so, you know, we have to be really careful. So this is one we see happen a lot. And if you are an entrepreneur and a tech entrepreneur, like this is a, a real one to watch. It, it happens a lot. So that's one. Another one we see a lot is the rapid responder. And that is the person who they prize agility. They want to keep their team moving fast. So they move fast. They react fast. Um, you know, these are people, an email does not last long in their inbox. It's kind of like, I call this way of leading, you know, see a bear, shoot a bear. And I don't know if you have a lot of bears up there. <laughs> Do you have any bears? No bears. No bears. Um, we have a lot of bears in California. We don't have a lot of hunters in California. So let me see. Um, we just see our bears. We love our bears. But it's this kind of this hunting mentality of like, it's a little trigger happy. It's someone sends you a text, you answer it right away. Someone sends you an email, you respond. Slack. Slack breeds rapid responder behavior. I mean, in fact, we were we were doing a multipliers workshop at Slack and we are going through all the ways that they diminish and they get to this one and they're like, we do that. And we're like, yeah, not only do you do that, you're causing a lot of that. See what happens is managers put other people in charge. Hey, you know what, Sarah, this is yours. You know, Juan, this, you're on top of this. But then when questions come back to them and the manager reacts quickly, it's like that ownership just transfers back to the manager. It's People end up waiting around when the boss is quick to respond. So the, a rapid responder we see a lot. And then the last one that we see um, very, very frequently, and the th- rounding out the top three would be the rescuer. Big hearted leaders love their team, love their people, want people to be successful. These are like people who go into management because they like people, not because it's a good career path. And when they see people struggling, they want to help. And sometimes they come in with a big heroic rescue, but more often than not, it's just when the manager lends a helping hand or answers a question like, oh, I'm kind of struggling with this boss. What should I do? And with rescue, like there's a whole ripple effect of bad things that happen when we do it. And I can go through it, but I think most people can probably see some of the things that happen when we step in and we rescue people who are struggling with hard work. Yeah, I I see those last two, that sort of instant responder and the rescuer. I see that sometimes when I'm working with clients and and they just sort of say, you know, what they've done is they've trained their organization to ask up, that they've trained their entire organization that, that wherever you are, your boss has the answer. And then they're like, well, why won't my team take initiative? And it's like, well, because you've trained them like this. And, you know, I, I'm certainly I'm not sure that I've ever been guilty of getting back too rapidly to anybody on email or Slack. So um, that, I, don't, I don't have that one on my list. The, the coming up with a thousand ideas, 
Yeah, that's definitely me. And certainly I've got, certainly I have some clients who love a crisis. They love it because they can, um, they can put on their superhero suit and jump in and save the day. And when there isn't a crisis, they're twitchy because they, you know, they have a default behavior and they're not doing it on purpose. They just, they're not thinking about the impact on their organization. They're just thinking on where they enjoy themselves the most, where they get the most personal satisfaction and they, they think they're helping. Well, and I think a lot of these problems can be solved by simply asking how fast can the company grow if I continue to do this? And, you know, if anyone has been a parent, you know, there's kind of a magic question that you ask as a parent, which is, if I continue to do this, will this child be a fully functioning adult? And when you'd beaten your son to the bus stop 18 times out of 18, you you thought perhaps... No, not a fully functioning adult. You know, like, um, yeah, or like if I bring... So there's an argument my husband and I have all the time is like what to do when the kids forget things. Now our kids are now getting old enough that this isn't a problem. But like if the kids would forget their lunch, he would hop in the car and go drive down to the school and bring the lunch. And I would be, no, let the kid go hungry. And that's an example of a well-intended rescuing behavior. You know, they won't learn to be sufficient themselves. They won't see the consequences of sloppy preparation. But, you know, I think a lot of parents think about the extensibility of their behavior, meaning if I continue to do this, will we have a successful outcome? And I think you could do the same thing as a leader, which is if I continue to give all the ideas, will we have a creative company? If I am always the one out meeting with customers, will we have a customer oriented culture or optimism? Like most people want a hopeful, optimistic culture. But if I'm the one pumping sunshine into the air, you know, like pumping sunshine into the meetings, will we have a sunny outlook in the company? No. See, like in some ways, all of these things that end up diminishing, and I'll just see if I can name off all nine, um, an idea guy, a perfectionist, a pace setter, a rapid responder, Uh, the always-on energetic leader, the visionary strategist, the the protective leader, the rescuer. If I didn't get them all, you'd probably get there. Is if I exhibit this behavior, perfectionism, like getting it exactly right, will I build a culture of excellence? I see that with CEOs who are perfectionists often, and they are absolutely the bottleneck because they say things like, I'm the only one who can catch those editorial mistakes. So no, nothing leaves the company until it's been approved by me. And therefore nothing leaves the company. Yeah. You know, um, I'll offer two really nice counters to perfectionism. The first I heard from a, um, a partner in a law firm and he said, oh, I have some real perfectionist tendencies. I'm a lawyer. Like he probably didn't need to tell me he had perfectionist tendencies. A lot of attorneys do. And he said, when I became partner in my law firm, I decided that I would only correct people's work under one condition. And that is is if it was legally wrong. So he didn't rewrite a sentence 
to improve the sentence. He only corrected it when it was when it was the thing that mattered. And he said, it has made all the difference in my ability to lead because I'm not constantly tearing down other people's work. I, I think it's a great, like only correct people's work if it's wrong, like if it's really bad, not if it could just be better. Well, there's a good, good friend of mine, Henry Stewart, who wrote a book called The Happy Manifesto. And in there, he said, one of the things that he thinks companies should do is their project should be pre-approved. Exactly that. The manager should, or the leader should actually say, you own this, whatever you recommend we're going to do, and not try and improve the output. Because it's just so unempowering. You know, if you know your boss is going to do all the work, let your boss do all the work. Yeah, you know, it's it's so much better to take, you know, we all know strategy is is a little bit of a facade. Like what is the right strategy? Like in most cases, the right strategy is the one you pick and stick with is the right strategy. And an idea baked to 90% that's executed with 100% commitment from the team is going to win over a perfect idea, a perfect strategy that everyone already hates out of the gate. It's not a winning strategy. And that's what happens when like a boss has to get it exactly right. You're better to say, you know what, let me get it good enough inbounds and then just let people run with it. Most of the time that is a better approach. And a remedy that I use for for this perfectionist tendency is, I call it just clarifying the three what's. And the first is what does great look like? But the second is what does done look like? And third is what is out of bounds? And, you know, what happens is for perfectionists, like you have this vision of this thing you want someone to create, but you've never really told them. And so they give you something substandard and you have to redo it. And like what I find is helpful when you say, you know what, let me just tell you what great looks like. You know, great looks like, you know, we'll know this thing is fantastic when, or we, we know this is done when, like it's done when I can forward it on to the client and there's no typos or great looks like it's compelling, it's eye-catching, but like we don't give people the criteria and we hold it in our head, but that's the thing is we have to define, here's the criteria that I'm going to, and it's the same criteria you would use when you were reworking somebody else's output. You're like, oh, well, this isn't colorful enough, or it's not exciting enough, or the report's not detailed enough. Well, you've got this secret criteria, like do your people a favor and tell it to them before they start working. Yes. And it goes, it goes back to that expectation settings and disappointment. And there's just a lack of clarity for people all the time. I see it all the time where just that we measure ourselves by our intentions and others by our impact. So others by their impact. Liz, what is it that you know now that looking back, you think to yourself, it might have been nice to have known that then? You know, it's funny because I spend more time thinking about rather than what, like, what um, advice would my 55-year-old self give to my 20-year-old self? I don't think a lot about that. I honestly think a lot more about what advice would my 24-year-old self give to my 55-year-old self? 
<laughs> okay. Brilliant. So what what are you going to do as a result of thinking like your 25-year-old self? Well, I like my 25-year-old self would say don't overthink this. Don't worry what other people are going to think. My 25-year-old self would would tell me to keep practicing what I call the naive yes. And that is to say yes to things before your brain kicks in and tells you the logical answer is no. And I, I, I don't mean like say yes to every request or every opportunity. I mean, when someone invites you to do something hard, like, you know, there's that first reaction of, oh, that sounds so fun. And then you start to think, wait a minute, I don't know how to do that. Or that's never been done before. Or what if I fail? What if I embarrass myself? Like, I'd like to practice the naive yes. Like, oh, yes, I'll do that. And then that night I'm like, what on earth did I just say yes to? Well, I suppose I better figure this out. Um, so I, like, that's the advice that really propels me. Um, if I had to give what I know now back to my 20-something-year-old self is that the people you associate with become who you are and to associate with the kind of people you want to become like i would probably remind myself of that or what that sort of uh you are the sum of the five people you spend most of your time with that type of thing i i think so yeah i i love this i don't know who first put it that way but um i really do believe it's the case and your larger environment i got lucky in that i got dropped into some environments where i just felt enriched by the people I was around. And I, I wonder, boy, I don't think I would have figured a lot of things out had I not been around a really wonderful peer group. Yeah. You learn less when you're the smartest person in the room. Yeah. That's why I feel like I'm so smart because I was like never the smartest person in the room. Like, ha ha. Well, look who's the smart one now. Because <laughs> I got to learn from you all. It's like, um, I'm always, you know, like playing tennis with my husband and doing these kinds of things. And I'm like, ha ha, look, I'm the lucky one. Cause I get to play tennis with someone who's so much better than me. And like, I'm learning. I'm like, always, always thank him for like, like not having any competition, <laughs> so, like, you know, go do things with me. Um, um, and, and Liz, what, uh, along the way, what, what books have you read that you think people should should pick up as well as as well as getting a copy of multipliers well i i'll tell you some of my favorites i'm looking over at my bookshelf here and yeah i mentioned good to great uh, that book really sort of put me on a, a thinking path i really like creativity inc and uh, you know it's written by ed catmull the founder and ceo of pixar and now with disney and i loved reading this book and i was so mad by the time i got done reading it because I'm like, wow, he, that book conveyed what I tried to do in multipliers and rookie smarts. He did it in one book and he's got stories about movies too. So that did what my two books did and then did it better. So I, I love Creativity Inc. Uh, work Rules by Lazo Bach, I think is a really interesting book. And maybe one that everyone should read right now is called the person you mean to be. I'm wanting to make sure I've got the title right. It's written, written by Dolly Chug of um, NYU. And it's written for those who 
understand unconscious bias, but want to try to counter it in their own professional life. It's like how to, how to be the, the person that you mean to be. Okay. Very good. I haven't come across that one. I'll definitely get that. The others I, I know and love. Brilliant. Liz, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And Dom, I have to say you have one of the best laughs of anyone. Like certain anyone that I've talked to on a podcast, but maybe just of anyone. Have you always had a great laugh? I have never had anybody tell me I had a great I have a great laugh. Thank you. You've made my day. Yeah, well, you've made my day. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.